Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Tiny Expeditions, a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. In today's episode, we're talking all about craft beer. If you haven't noticed, craft beer is on the rise. New breweries are popping up all over the place. There's something about the art and craft of the process of beer making that draws us in and, well, is rather tasty as well. Of course, if you're going to have craft beer, you have to have the ingredients to make it. And that's going to be the focus of our expedition today. Today, we're going to sit down with three guests from the Hudson Alpha Institute to talk about the science of craft brewing. We'll talk about growing barley and hops in Alabama and creating new beer flavors from gene-edited yeast. My name is Chris. I'm going to be your storytelling guide for today. And I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, your science advisor for this expedition. So let's get started by talking about barley with Jeremy Schmutz. He's the co-director of the Genome Sequencing Center at the Hudson Alpha Institute. Yeah, I'm uh, Jeremy Schmutz, and I'm a faculty investigator at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Uh, and we work on plants and plant genomics. We've been interested in barley for just about a year and a half now. Not too long. It's uh, relatively new. Uh, we worked on, uh, worked on the original barley genome sequencing project many years ago. Um, and then uh, we had an opportunity last year to work on a new version of the barley genome sequence using our sort of latest technology in this uh, single molecule high throughput sequencing. Um, and then out of that grew a project to, to start to look at the question of whether we could uh, grow barley here for Alabama. The question of whether we can grow barley here in Alabama is an important one. Barley used to grow in the Deep South, but it is no longer grown here. There is a renewed interest to see if barley, along with other beer-making ingredients like hops, can again grow and flourish in the South. However, a study of this magnitude takes many collaborators. So the um, so there's there's actually um, multiple partners involved in in this uh, project now for Alabama, which has recently been funded um, from uh, from ADECA, which is the Alabama Economic Development um, Arm. And the idea here is that we have both Auburn University and Alabama A and M uh, working on the uh, field and agronomy sides of this project. And this includes um, in the barley case. Uh, this includes growing barley over winter. Um, at multiple locations in Alabama, um, in this case, uh, two locations uh, at Auburn Field Station sites, and then also at Alabama A&M, which is somewhat close by here at Hudson Alpha Institute. And then uh, growing the barley over winter to test a bunch of different varieties, which come from different locations in the U.S., including from uh, North Dakota State's uh, uh, North Dakota State's breeding program, and then also from Virginia Tech's breeding program, and then some other uh, lines that are mixed in there to try to evaluate uh, which of uh, these barley lines will be successful, um, make it all the way through the winter, and then come back again and produce seeds, be harvestable, have low disease, and then also be usable downstream in things like the Alabama brewing industry. Jeremy and his team wasted no time getting started on this project. They brought in barley varieties that are known to grow elsewhere in the United States and tried to see if they could plant them in Alabama. Yeah, we uh, we did a pilot uh, last year with... Um, uh, with A&M, A&M planted 25 varieties, and Auburn organized a, a pilot to plant a much larger set of varieties. They had, I think, over 50 varieties in the Auburn planting. Um, and then at the end of the year, um, which uh, here in this case is would, would be uh, early spring, uh, early summer, late spring of this year, uh, the material was harvested at those locations, and then we sent a good amount of it for phenotyping to look at questions. Phenotyping means evaluating the, the output of that crop. 
um, to to see uh, what whether it was uh, multiple, for example, for brewing, what the nutritional characteristics were, and and I think at the as a result of this, we have pretty good success in in potentially. Uh, definitely being able to grow barley over winter and then being able to potentially use it downstream in applications. So you may be asking, what's the point? Why do we want barley in the South? Well, there's two answers to that question. Number one, economic reasons. We want to diversify the agricultural economy of the South. And another reason is we want our craft beer to be from the South. I think that the interest here is in barley is that uh, barley is a uh, opportunity to have a potentially higher impact uh, economic crop uh, than than wheat uh, for uh, for growers in Alabama. That's primarily because uh, with uh, barley, um, with barley you can ferment it and turn it into beer, um, rather than necessarily barley as only a food crop. Although barley is also used as a food crop, you know, if we can have a local industry that uses any crops that are grown here in Alabama, then that adds greatly to the economic impact for Alabama. So rather than um, growing a commodity crop where it effectively gets sold in the commodity market, um, actually grow crops that we can use downstream here in Alabama um, to produce uh, goods and services or for, for people uh, here in the Southeast. Like barley, hops are important to brewers, but they naturally grow in the 35th to 55th parallels, which means not in the South. Our next interviewee is working to change that. We are going to be able to grow hops in Alabama. We are going to be able to have locally sourced hops that drive down the street or just a couple hours away. We'll have adapted lines or maybe our own new flavors of, of lines that we can grow here locally. That's the voice of Dr. Sarah Carey. Hi there, my name is uh, Dr. Sarah Carey and I work with Dr. Alex Harkis here at Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Um, and we also work for Auburn University down in Auburn, Alabama. My research focuses on the evolution of sex chromosomes in plants, uh, which is really, really rare in flowering plants, um, like hops that we're going to talk about today. But it's really useful for breeding programs. So what we do is we, we sequence genomes of these species that have sex chromosomes, like hops, and try and figure out uh, what genes are on these regions and, and how we can use them to make uh, delicious hops and great crosses. One of the questions we had for Dr. Carey was, well, where does an idea like this come from? How did you get started researching hops? And once the idea hit, well, what's the next steps? Where do you go from there? Because I'm a postdoctoral associate, um, there are often these fellowships that we write at the stage of our careers that can give us research funding and, and help us um, yeah, we just get, get these fellowships. And we are trying to come up with ideas for ones that would be competitive for, for a fellowship. And Alex suggested, well, what about hops? Because we know it's dioecious. Uh, the females make the delicious hop cones we use in breeding. Um, they, they have sex chromosomes. They've been studied for a long, long time uh, cytologically. But there's not a lot of genomics that has been done. And so we thought this would be great for a fellowship kind of application. In order to study sex chromosomes and other useful genes in the hops genome, Dr. Carey needs a reference genome to compare it to. But there are many hop varieties, so where do you even start? Uh, hops are dioecious, which means that about half of the individuals of the plants grow carpels, which um, make eggs, and half of the individuals of the species make stamens. So they're female and male plants, much like we find in, in animals, where half of the individuals are male and half are female. 
So this is really, really rare in plants. Um, it has evolved thousands of independent times across flowering plants alone. Um, but it's really, really useful for breeding because if you can control which egg receives which pollen, you can control the crosses that you're making much more easier than in other species of flowering plants where the pollen may just land on itself and kind of have its own crosses that, that you're less in control of. And so we only really economically want to grow the females to make hop cones to put in beer, but need males to be able to make these particular crosses that we want to get plants to have new fun flavor profiles or try and get them to grow in different locations. So we want to sequence genomes for all of the five varieties of Humulus lupulus, um, and then also its sister species, Humulus japonicus. Uh, and so most beer that is produced uses this one variety of hops, one of the five, and that's Humulus lupulus variety lupulus. And this descends from parts of Europe and parts of Asia, and so um, it's really from that region, and it, it does grow really well in similar environments. So anywhere that's kind of in the 35th to 55th parallels of, of any country, these hops grow really well. That kind of keeps it to certain parts of the United States. So if we want to start growing hops in a place like Alabama, which is not in the 35th, it's below the 35th parallel, we have to start thinking about how we can breed selectively to, to get them to, to grow happily here. And so it turns out there are three of the varieties grow in the United States. They grow wild here. Um, so there's a humulus lupulus variety neomexicanus is, is native to ranges that are below that 35th parallel, like Arizona and New Mexico. So much drier and have that similar kind of photo period that, uh, that we would need to grow hops in Alabama. So we thought, well, let's sequence the genome for humulus lupulus variety lupulus because that is the really important economic one. Let's look at these other varieties too that grow in these different localities and see if we can find genes that might help us selectively breed plants to grow better in these different novel locations. And so we talked about adding in the Neomexicanus and we're like, well, you know, if we're gonna do two, let's do three genomes. We can do pubescens as well, which has a different range. And well, if we're gonna do three, let's do four. So we'll add lupuloides and then kind of turn into, we'll, we'll do all five, all five varieties. Um, which is Cordifolius is, is the other one which has a different range um, in parts of Asia. So then we were like, well, if we're already down, we're gonna do five genomes, let's do six. We'll do the entire genus. <laughs> and so we can have this really nice comparative framework for uh, the entire genus of, of Humulus and see how the genomes have changed across these different varieties and species. It may seem like there's a fine line between a scientist and a brewer. And that fine line gets even more blurred when we're talking about Dr. Josh Clevenger. You've heard from Dr. Clevenger before on previous episodes of Tiny Expeditions, but today we want to talk to Dr. Clevenger about his home brewing and specifically about a third important ingredient for brewers, yeast. So my wife got me for Christmas, which I'm sure she regrets it now, but she got me a, a home brewing kit for Christmas in 2011. 
so about 10 years. And for a long time, I, I did everything wrong. I was just whatever. I didn't check temperatures. I was, I was the worst. But when I started becoming a serious scientist and started realizing that, that the brewing process was um, all biological and it was basically brewers are, are scientists all the time. You know, they're making little differences and experimenting to see. And really the phenotype is not disease resistance or something like that. But the phenotype is, I like this, I don't like this. So, um, <laughs> or this is good beer, this is junk beer. Um, so I got really into thinking about the process and producing the beer that I wanted to drink um, instead of um, just buying the beer that I didn't really want to drink, but it was the only beer that was at the store. These days, when you hear people talking about beer flavors, it seems like hoppy notes or malty texture always come up. But it turns out yeast is a very important contributor to the flavor profile, too. The yeast is the most interesting contributor to flavor. Um, In fact, if you take the same beer and split it into 10 batches and pitch 10 different kinds of yeast, you're going to get very different beers. Um, And that's because um, the particular enzymes and activity of those yeast strains are doing different things with the compounds. The actual wort is this this really rich um, soup of lots of vitamins and minerals and different compounds that are coming out of the of the barley uh, grain itself from the hops Um, and so um, there's just lots of expression that that the yeast can do in that process so yeah yeast is a major player in contributing to flavor we've talked a lot about craft brewing but we decided we probably needed to try some of this uh, in the name of science of course so sarah and i sat down with dr clevenger He brought in some of his latest experiments, and I know in grade school we were told, never try your science experiments. But in this case, we had a professional with us. We decided to try it. So I brewed some beer, and I did a sort of traditional um, homebrew experiment where I, what we call split batch, where essentially you just um, brew a batch of beer and you split it into two fermenters and you pitch different yeast in them and uh, you see what, what different flavors you get. Um, and in this time it was, it was more directed than that. Um, I used um, a new uh, strain of yeast released by Omega uh, and it's called Bonanza. Um, and this is a really simple um, uh, edit that they did. This is one of their first gene-edited um, uh, yeasts. Um, and it's a traditional Hefeweizen yeast, which um, those of us that are familiar with the Hefeweizen style, it's, it's um, uh, noted for um, rich uh, banana notes and clove spicy notes. Um, and what, what Omega wanted to do is they wanted to turn off that, that spicy clove. In fact... And I didn't know this, but um, that spicy clove flavor is actually an off, considered an off flavor. So they, they call this yeast their phenolic off flavor negative, meaning they don't want that biosynthetic pathway to be expressed. Um, that particular note is, is from an, uh, a compound called 4-vinyl guaiacol. Um, it's produced by a gene that's called FDC1. Um, and so in this first yeast that we're going to look at, the Bonanza yeast, essentially they just edit out FDC1. It doesn't produce that compound. And so all it produces is banana. Um, I used it in a Hefeweizen, so you could see side by side with the traditional Hefeweizen yeast, the difference between them. 
Um, but actually, they recommend put, making like a banana milk stout or a banana chocolate shake beer. Um, I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if I want to drink that. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but hopefully you can tell you know the uh, the difference between these two yeast strains. So we sat down and tried this first experiment that Dr. Clevenger offered us, and indeed there was a difference between the two yeasts that he used. So I'm generally a Hefeweizen gal, so trying this was very interesting to me. Um, The beer with the traditional Hefeweizen flavors definitely had that punch of clove, but then when we tried the one um, that was brewed with the Bonanza yeast, the clove flavor just wasn't there. Yeah, you smell that spice? Yeah, that's like a big difference. The the that's that's the phenolic. So this one's pressed and yeah, this one isn't. Yeah, so same beer, just split into two, fermented side by side. Wow. But Dr. Clevenger wasn't through. He had some other drinks for us to try as well, and these packed a little bit more of a punch. So what they did with Cosmic Punch was that they looked for an uh, enzyme called beta-lyase. And what beta-lyase does is it releases the precursors from these thiols, and so it allows them to be there in the beer. And what's really interesting is that usually you get them from yeast. I mean, I'm sorry, usually you get them from hops. But the precursors are in, are in really high concentration in the barley. So actually what this yeast is doing is it has a this beta lyase gene that's normally inactivated. It's naturally found in the yeast, but it was gained mutation. The yeast didn't need it because um, we didn't select for it, and so it was gone. In the yeast strains that it was there and active, it's turned off in wort because wort has high levels of nitrogen. What they did was they took this beta lyase gene that was not mutated, that was that that did what it was supposed to do, and they put it on a promoter that always expressed it, even under these conditions in wort. And so what it's doing is it's actually releasing these thiols from the precursors that are in the barley. So the yeast is producing hop-like flavor and aroma from the actual barley and not from the hops. So for me, that is an incredibly sort of creative way to produce new flavors because they weren't thinking about how do I get more juicy aroma and flavor from the hops. They're thinking, how can I use the yeast to get it from the barley itself? That's the amazing thing about science. We can reimagine new ways to experience the world, or in this case, tasting barley, hops, and yeast in our favorite craft beer. Now that we know more about the science behind craft brewing, take a moment, go visit your local brewery, see what new beers are on tap, taste the new flavors, and then thank a scientist for their work on barley and yeast and hops. Who knows? Very soon, that local beer may also have local ingredients. Thank you, science. Thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the science of craft brewing. Next episode, we'll find out if you can grow plants in space. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. 
That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this podcast helpful, do us a favor and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and then tell somebody that you heard this interesting little story about genetics. Thank you for joining us.